Now, we've come to chapter 14, and the theme here is the Lamb on Mount Zion, the everlasting gospel preached in the world, and that Babylon will fall, and judgment and blessing is announced, and in the coming of Armageddon also. So you see, this is a chapter that contains many things, and we'll be looking at that. Now, this chapter constitutes a hiatus in the series of the seven performers that concluded last time. Now, it's obvious that this interlude could not be fitted in between the sixth and seventh performers who are the two wild beasts. First, the wild beast out of the sea, the wild beast then out of the earth. They had to be considered together. They're just like Siamese twins, and the continuity between them could not be broken. Therefore, this interlude follows the seventh performer in recognition of the logical sequence of this book, which is not a hodgepodge of visions, but it unfolds in a logical, chronological, and mathematical order. Now, there are certain performers here that are called to our attention in this chapter to give us a full-orbed view of the spectacular events of the two previous chapters. In other words, there are other performers besides the seven that are mentioned. And it's clear from chapter 13, and we mentioned it then, that that's the darkest day and the most horrible hour in history. It's truly hell's holiday. And every thoughtful mind must inevitably ask the question, he can't avoid it, how did God's people fare during this period? Could they make it through to the end with overwhelming odds against them? Well, the shepherd who began with 144,000 sheep is now identified with them as the lamb. And do you know how many he has with him? Well, he doesn't have 143,999 sheep. He has 144,000 sheep. He did not lose one, for he redeemed them, and he sealed them, and he kept them, for he is the great shepherd of the sheep. And these sheep are of another flock that are not of this fold. That is the fold we're in today. He got these sheep through all right. And that's a picture that's before us now as we open this chapter. And he's going to have the last word, not the two beasts. The Lord Jesus will, the lamb. And this is not the lamb that speaks like a dragon. This is the Lord Jesus himself. And since he's going to have the last word, Babylon will fall. That will be the great political capital, the great commercial capital, and the great religious capital of the world during the Great Tribulation. It'll fall, and the followers of the beast will be judged. Many of his own became martyrs, but they didn't lose. They won. (laughs) Again, I say with Calvin, I'd rather be on the side that seems to be losing today, but it's going to win finally, than to be on the side that seems to be winning today, but it's going to lose eternally. 
I'm glad I'm on the winning side. Now, we are told them that they are martyrs and their works fall after them. He's going to reward them. And the Lamb's returning to the earth. We're going to see that when we get to the 19th chapter. And the morning is coming. The darkness will fade away. And the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in His wings. Now, we have here, first of all, the picture of the Lamb with 144,000. And that's presented to us in the first five verses. Now, let me read. And I saw and behold the Lamb standing on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now, John says, and I saw. Now, that indicates that John is still the spectator to these events. And the reel here continues to roll, and the story continues to unfold. And the Lamb here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have already seen that in the fifth chapter. I'll not go back there, but we saw it in verse 6, verse 8, verse 12, verse 13. Then in chapter 6 and verse 1, chapter 13. We see now the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb. And then something that we ought to make very clear. Mount Zion here is at Jerusalem. No use trying now to locate this any other place except where it is, and that's Jerusalem. And what we have here is a picture of a placid and pastoral scene, and this is what opens the millennial kingdom here upon this earth. And the Lord Jesus is going to reign from Jerusalem. He called it the city of the great king. And then in Psalm 2.6, if you have any doubt about Mount Zion, "...yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion." Now, it's the Lord's intention to put the Lord Jesus on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and specifically Mount Zion. Now, the 144,000 we believe here to be the ones that were sealed back in chapter 7. Now, I recognize there are some problems that are connected with this view. But they came through the great tribulation, like the three Hebrew children came through the fiery furnace. And notice that the Lamb is standing with them on Mount Zion. Although he is in his person the Lamb, he is also the shepherd. He started out with 144,000. And he came through the great tribulation, not with 143,999, but 144,000. He has all of them. He didn't lose a one. And in this hour, in our day, when the pressures of Satan bear us down, the living, victorious Christ is available to us. Oh, that you and I might come to know him better that we might draw closer to him, and that he might be more meaningful to us, and that he might occupy a greater place in our lives day by day. I'm convinced in my own experience that the Lord Jesus Christ in person is the answer. It's so easy to say Jesus is the answer. 
And when I see that, I always say, well, what's the question? Well, he is the answer to all of these problems that men are running around today trying to work out some little method or some little system, and that if you do it, why you can solve the problems of your life, your home, your work, your church, and all that sort of thing. And if there ever was a day in which there was so much teaching in all of these areas, and there's less living of these things out in the lives of believers, in the homes of believers, in the business of believers, in the community where the believer lives. What is the real problem today? It's not that we need a method. We don't need a method. We need Christ. We need to know him more. We need to draw closer to him. He needs to be more meaningful to him. Have you talked to him today yet, friends? And by the way, when was the last time you told him that you loved him? Well, he's said he loves you, and we ought to say that back to him. Now, I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 here, and as usual, I'm reading in my translation. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And the voice which I heard was as the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sing, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no man could learn the song save the hundred and forty and four thousand, even they that had been purchased out of the earth. Now, John begins by saying here, and I heard. John's a spectator, but he's also an auditor to this scene here. Now, the hundred and forty-four thousand joined the heavenly chorus in the millennium. And have you ever heard a choir of a hundred and forty-four thousand? Well, up to this time, earth has been out of tune with heaven. But here the rule of Satan is over, and heaven and earth are in tune. And what Browning said is true when you get to the millennium. God is in his heaven, and all's right with the world. But, boy, all things are wrong with the world right now. Now, the 144,000 here learn this new song, And they join in the harmony of heaven. God has put his harpers in heaven, while the 144,000 on earth on Mount Zion. That's a long ways from the instruments, by the way. And these harpers here, now I've been a pastor for many, many years. And I can say that I've met a lot of harpers down here. They're always harping on something. And they're harping about this. But these are different kind of harpers. They are really going to make music. Ones I've listened to didn't make very good music. Now we're told that they are purchased out of the earth. It means that they've been purchased to enter the millennium on earth. Not taken to heaven. They've been purchased out of the earth. They've been purchased, which means to live on the earth because the unsaved are not going to live on the earth. And no one can sing this song but the redeemed. No one can sing praises unto God but the redeemed. Again, I wish that that could be gotten over to a great many song leaders today. 
Now, I can see their problem. They want to get everybody to sing. And they say, now, look, I see everybody's not singing. Now, we want everybody to sing this song. Well, friends, if you've got a mixed audience, that is, of saved and unsaved people, don't ask the unsaved to sing a song of redemption. Don't ask them to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. Why, if an unsaved person sings that, you're making a liar out of them. Don't ask them to sing it. Just let the redeemed sing it. In fact, the psalmist says, The Lord is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And friends, who else can say so? Nobody else is going to say so. Only the redeemed. And that's the reason that we need to say so Christianity today. To say that God is good. That's something that we need to emphasize today. Now, heaven and earth are brought here in marvelous harmony during the millennium. And what a contrast it was to chapter 13, where earth is in rebellion against heaven under the beast. Here all is tranquility under the Lamb. Now, let me move on down and read to you verses 4 and 5, and I'm going to read in my translation here. These are they that were not defiled or besmirched with women, for they are virgins. These are they that follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were purchased from among men to be the firstfruits unto God and unto the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no lie. They are without blemish. Now, they were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, what does that mean? That has always been a puzzle to me. I'll be very frank with you. Now, it can have a literal or spiritual sense, or both. And I personally think that probably both are here. Uh, I think John would have indicated which one he was emphasizing. Now, the period of the Great Tribulation is one of unparalleled suffering. And the 144,000 have been through that period. And the abnormal times demanded an abnormal state. And that was the reason. I can recall in World War I as a boy that many a young fellow went to war and he was engaged to a girl, and he never came home. And sometime they got married right before he left, and he had a child that he never saw because he never came home. Well, that was war times. And I've heard, well, I had one woman say, I wished I'd never gotten married. Well, that's her viewpoint. Well, certainly during this period, it's going to be so terrible that they'll not get married. Now, Jeremiah lived at a critical time also, at the time of the Babylonian captivity. And God forbade him to marry because of the dark days. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah the 16th chapter. Will you listen to this? Beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. For thus said the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born in this place. 
and concerning their mothers that bear them, and concerning their fathers that begat them in this land. They shall die of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, but they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of earth. Now, our Lord pronounced a woe, you'll recall, upon those who were with child during the great tribulation. In Matthew 24, 19, he said, "'Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days.'" Now, you and I are living in a day when we're told, Paul says, that marriage is honorable, the bed undefiled. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about this a great deal. And God's injunction to know after the flood, not before, was to multiply and replenish the earth. And that is not the Scripture to apply to a world today that's faced with a population explosion and at a time when believers can see the approach of the end of the age. During the Great Tribulation, there will be an exaggerated emphasis upon sex, and obviously, immorality will prevail. And it will not be a good thing to marry during the Great Tribulation. Now, the 144,000 will have kept themselves aloof from the sins of the Great Tribulation period. And considering adultery now in a spiritual sense, and I'd like to mention that also, idolatry was classified as spiritual fornication in the Old Testament. The classic example is Ezekiel 16. And there you find God's severe indictment against Israel for fornication and adultery, which was idolatry. Now, the 144,000 have kept themselves from the worship of the beast and his image during the great tribulation. So you see that when it says here, these are they that were not defiled with women, for they are virgins, it apparently means that they kept themselves from the immorality of the great tribulation period, although they had not married because of the extreme and severe times into which their lot was cast, and they did not marry it, but they didn't yield to that immorality of this period. And also, and I think that both things are true, that fornication, adultery is labeled that in the Old Testament, but it means idolatry. It means worshiping idols. And so we have here both in view. We have, I think, the literal sense and the spiritual sense. And I think both of them make good sense, by the way. And now, we are told that in this fourth verse, they are first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now, that has very definite reference to the nation Israel. Paul says in Romans 11, 15 and 16, "...for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world..." What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the firstfruits be holy, the lump is also holy. 
And if the root be holy, so are the branches. So that these are the first fruits. And Israel is described as that, and especially this 144,000. Now, they're going to, I think, occupy a unique place in the millennial kingdom. They will evidently be the vanguard with the Lamb when he returns to set up the kingdom. And we'll see that in the 19th chapter. Now, we're told, in their mouth was found no lie. Why? Well, that means they did not participate in the big lie of the beast when he used lying wonders. They didn't fall for it. Remember the Lord Jesus said that if it were possible to deceive the elect, well, they'd be deceived, but they won't be deceived. And they weren't. Now, they're without blemish. Now, why are they without blemish? Because they've been through the great tribulation, been purified? No, they're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's the way I'm going to heaven, friends. I'm not going to heaven because I think I'm good, because I know I'm not. And I say it again. If you knew me like I know myself, you'd shut that radio off now. But wait a minute, don't turn that knob. Because if I knew you like you know yourself, I wouldn't be talking to you. But since we both, you know, are like we are, sinners saved by the grace of God, let me continue and you continue listening. And now I'm going to turn down to verses 6 and 7. And we have here the proclamation of the everlasting gospel. And we're reading from our own translation now. And I saw another angel. And here we go with another angel. There are a lot of another angels here. And another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim unto them that dwell on the earth. And notice it's confined to those that now dwell on the earth. And unto every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he saith with a great voice, Fear God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made the heaven and the earth and sea and fountains of water. Now, the question naturally arises, how is this the gospel? Gospel means good tidings or good news. Is this good news? If you're God's child, it's good news, friend. And it's an eternal gospel. Is it the same gospel we preach? Yes, I want to say that it is the same gospel that we preach, but there's something been added, not to get saved, but now they can say that he's getting ready to come, that he's coming in judgment. And that's good news for God's people. It's bad news for the world. And this another angel denotes another radical change in the protocol of God's communication with the earth. This angel is the first in a parade of six angels. And I'll be calling attention to them as we go along. And this is the first one of six that will appear. During this age, the gospel has been committed to man, and they alone are the messengers. Angels would like to give it, but they'll not be permitted to. But at the beginning of the great tribulation, men are the messengers of God as the 144,000 reveal. And even the two witnesses with supernatural power could not stand up against Satan, but were removed from the satanic scene of earth. Angels as well as men 
were the messengers of the Old Testament. In other words, the words spoken by angels were steadfast. Hebrews 2.2 records, "...the times are so intense in this period that only angels can get the messages of God through to the world." Angels are indestructible. Now, he's flying in mid-heaven. Now, that was a ridiculous statement a few years ago, and some of the critics of the Bible ridiculed it. It's not a ridiculous statement, because right now, out yonder in space, there is a satellite, I think it's called Telstar, isn't it? And they have several of them up there. And they are making worldwide television a practical reality so that whatever happens in Israel or England or China, well, we don't get it from China very well, but Japan, you can not only get it that evening on your news, but you can get it just as it was happening. The picture brings it over here. And this is not so ridiculous. Again, may I say this eternal gospel, fear God, is the message. Why? Well, the writer to the Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, he's saying to God's people, get wise, get smart, because you need to fear God. God saved you by his grace, but he's going to judge this earth. Now we have here... In verse 8, the pronouncement of judgment on Babylon. And here in this chapter, he's bringing these before us that are going to appear again in the book. But he is giving us, as it were, a program that God is going to follow. Now, let me read. And another angel, a second. Here's another angel. Now, this is a second one. We're going to have six of them. Followed saying... Fell, fell, is Babylon the great, that made all the nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, there is a book, I think it's out of print, but if you can put your hand on one of them, you ought to read it, and especially in these days. It's Hislop's book on the two Babylons. It reveals that Babylon has been Satan's headquarters from the very beginning. This is the place where idolatry began. It's the fountainhead of idolatry. Samarimus was the wife of Nimrod. Some think his mother, and she married her own son. But be that as it may, why she was queen of Babel, which later became Babylon, and she devised a nice little story that began a whole system of idolatry, and it was that she actually came out of an egg that came up out of the Euphrates River, and she cracked the shell and stepped out full-grown. That's what she said. And she's been worshipped. It introduced the female principle into deity. And that reveals that Babylon began all of the false religion. Now, this second angel runs ahead and announces that which is yet to come as if it had already taken place. Fail, fail is Babylon. And if I may be technical for just a moment, this is in what is known as the prophetic aorist. In other words, God's prophetic word is so sure 
at this point that he speaks as though the event had already taken place. And it's just that sure. It's as if it were history already. But he's looking ahead. Now, Babylon will evidently be rebuilt during the Great Tribulation period. And if you have my book on Isaiah, you ought to turn to chapter 13, and you'll see there that it is to be rebuilt, not in the same place that the judgment on it, which is predicted in Isaiah, is yet to come. Now, the idolatry of Babylon is a divine intoxication which will fascinate the entire world. And that's the reason we have all this experimenting today with Satan worship, with exorcism, and all that type of thing, these cults that arise today that are definitely satanic. Now, I read Jeremiah 51, 7. It says, "...Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are mad." If you could get off far enough and look at this earth today, I'm of the opinion you'd be a little disappointed in mankind and the nations of the world. Isaiah thirteen eleven says, "...and I'll punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible." And again in Jeremiah 25, there we have the bringing down of the wrath of God upon the world. And in Isaiah thirteen nineteen. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a judgment on Babylon that we're going to see, a religious Babylon in the 17th chapter and the commercial Babylon in the 18th chapter. Now, friends, I'm going to read from verses 9 through 12 because this is the section that gives us the pronouncement of judgment on those who receive the mark of the beast. Now, it's true that by receiving the mark of the beast, they probably made it through the great tribulation period, or at least most of it. But after all, part of the great tribulation is caused not by Satan being released, but also it's the direct judgment of Christ upon this earth, a Christ-rejecting world, in which he is getting ready to move personally and directly to put down the rebellion against him that is here. So listen to this. And another angel. Here we go for the third one. Now, this is the third angel, and there are three more to come. And he says here, "...another angel, a third, followed them." saying with a great voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receiveth a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mingled unmixed in the cup of his anger. I just pause to say this. Do you think that the Lord Jesus is going to push the church he redeemed in this, which he very definitely says, is mingled, unmixed in the cup of his anger. I can't believe that that could be possible. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment 
goeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, they that worship the wild beast and his image, and whoso receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, he's speaking again to a group of people who keep the commandments of God, the Old Testament law. They even bring sacrifices in that day, we are told, during the Great Tribulation and even into the millennium. Now, this section, I think, makes it crystal clear that no one can assume a neutral position during this intense period under the beast. Even today, we see Christian businessmen who are capitulating to the ethics of the hour. In chapter 13, we saw that the awful alternative for refusing to receive the mark of the beast was starvation. On the other hand, the person who receives the mark brings down upon his head the wrath of God. Now, will you notice, it says he shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. I don't believe the Lord Jesus is going to push that cup up against his church. Now, that's a figure, though, that's adopted from the Old Testament. In Psalm 75, 8, I read, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. Now, the Old Testament prophets picked that up, and they saw the cup of wrath filling up to the brim. And then when it was filled to the brim, that is, God would be patient and let man go on and on. The cup of wrath would be filled. And then God would press it to the lips of a godless society. They just kept building this thing up until judgment had to break. Now, we're told here they are to be tormented with fire and brimstone. Now, I want to say this, that if this is not literal fire and brimstone, then whatever it is is worse than fire and brimstone, because if it is a symbol... A symbol is used to give a faint representation. It's sort of like the essence of something. I know there's the essence of peppermint, the essence of certain perfume. And I heard this definition of what essence is. Essence is the faint odor that's left in the bottle after the substance is gone. Now, what is it? A symbol. Well, it's the essence. It is just a faint copy of the reality. And the reality is, I think, ten times worse. But remember that the brimstone of Sodom was quite literal. So that's something for you to mull over if you want to reject a literal hell. Now, will you notice here that hell is visible to Christ and the holy angels but it does not say that it's visible to the 24 elders. And are we to assume from that that the church does not know what's taking place on the earth? Now, I'm inclined to believe 
that the church will not see what's taking place on the earth during the great tribulation period. But certainly Christ and the holy angels. Now, all that God's own can do in this period, therefore, is to be patient and wait for the coming of Christ. He says here is the patience of the saints. And they are the ones that wait. Our Lord said, But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. But why will he endure? Because he's been sealed by the Spirit of God. And he's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he's able to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And our Lord said in Luke twenty-one nineteen, In your patience possess ye your soul. That's all you can do. Just wait out the storm. And that's what they will do in the great tribulation. Now, we have here praise for those who die in the Lord in verse 13. Now, here again is a verse that is taken to a funeral today. And certainly the minute that you take it to a funeral, why, it has no application whatsoever. This is going to refer to the period we're talking about, the great tribulation period. Now, regardless of whatever view that you take, and you believe this is the great tribulation period, then this can only refer to that period. Now, will you listen? And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, said the Spirit, and that they may rest from their labors or sorrows, for their works follow with them. Now, this is not a statement for saints in the present age. Apparently, many of God's saints, these tribulation saints, both of the 144,000 and also of the uncounted number of Gentiles, They'll be saved. They're going to lay down their life for Christ. They'll be martyrs. And now he has this word of praise for them. Blessed are those that die in the Lord. Because now they're going to rest from their sorrows finally. But their works are going to follow them, and he's going to reward them for this in a very particular way. May I say that, first of all, I feel that It's unnatural to want to die. Most of us want to live. Paul could say this in Philippians 1.23, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. Now, it's far better to die and go and be with Christ. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Personally, I'd like to stay down here quite a few more years and teach the Word of God. I'm in no hurry to get to heaven. I'm going there someday, but I'm in no hurry to go there. Now, this old story I've told you before illustrates my viewpoint. The black boy in my Southland years ago went to church some Sunday night. Preacher asked that, said, how many of you want to go to heaven? And everybody put up their hand but this boy. And he looked down at him and he said, son, don't you want to go to heaven? And the boy said, yes but said, I thought you were getting up a load for tonight. Well, friends, I just don't want to be on that load either for tonight. I want to live down here because I'm going there ultimately, and I'd like to live and serve just as long as possible. I think it's unnatural to want to die. But in the Great Tribulation, friends, I think that's another story. All you're doing is just waiting in patience and in sorrow. Now, if you're martyred, 
It'll be a wonderful thing. Blessed are those that die in the Lord. And they're going to be rewarded. And he's going to reward them. Now, may I say this, that I don't think this is a good verse for a funeral today, especially some man that's been living in the clover all of his life, some wealthy man. And I heard it used in Texas at a rich man's funeral. Why, the man had been brought up in a home of wealth. He had never known what it was to lift his little finger to ever work. And he just sort of toyed around with a wrench and lost money on it because he had so much he had to get rid of it some way, and that's the way he got rid of it. And yet the preacher applied this, that applies to tribulation saints. And to me, it's a terrible abuse of the Word of God that's going to be precious to these people in the great tribulation today, but not for the saints living in affluence in a society today that's geared to comfort. Everything is geared to comfort today. Now, let me drop down to verses 14 through 20, and we're given here a preview of Armageddon. And I call it the battle here, but I now call it the war of Armageddon. Now, let me read. And I saw, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud one sitting like unto a son of man, having on his head a golden crown, in his hand a sharp sickle. Now, I saw, and behold, John says, he sees and hears here. Now, a white cloud, and on the cloud one sitting like unto a son of man. And I think that's evidently the Lord Jesus Christ that we have here. And the cloud is, I think, a mark of identification. We are told in Matthew 24, 30, "...then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And I think it's that Shekinah cloud that is the sign in heaven. On his head a golden crown. And that, I think, further confirms this one as the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the hero of this book, friends. And you need revelation to get a true picture of him. Now, he's seen as king here, not as prophet or priest. His office as king is always connected with his return to the earth. A sharp sickle establishes this and speaks of the judgment of the wicked. And you have here something I think quite interesting. Dr. Newell calls attention to this word sickle. He notices that it occurs only 12 times in the Scriptures, of which seven are in the verses of this section. Also, the word sharp occurs seven times in Revelation and four times here. Now, will you notice what he says? Verses 15 and 16. "...and another angel came out of the temple, crying in a great voice to the one seated on the cloud, Send forth thy sickle and reap, for the hour is come to reap, for the harvest of the earth was dried. And he that sat on the cloud cast his sickle upon the earth, and the earth was reaped. And I think that is the second coming of Christ. Now, send forth thy sickle and reap. That refers to the judgment of man on the earth. In Matthew, the harvest 
has so long been identified with Christian witnessing, and believers have been urged to pray for laborers for the harvest, that it's difficult for the average Christian to fit this scene into the true context of Scripture. Actually, believers are not urged to harvest today. They are urged to sow, and to sow the Word of God. A sower went forth to sow. That's the picture of Christendom today. The Lord Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the sower. And the seeds, the Word of God, and the field is the world, and he's flinging it out in the world. Now there's going to be a harvest someday. But that is at the end of the age. You and I are not harvesting. That's not our business. Our business is sowing seed. And that's the reason that I don't worry today about the results. I worry a great deal about the source. I want to do my best here in giving out the Word of God. Why? Because that's my business, sowing seed. I'm not really concerned about the number who put up their hands. Now, anyway, I couldn't see you if you put up your hand. But the letters tell us the story. And as I said, I have a sheaf of letters here of those that have turned to Christ. We just sow seed. That's our business. He's the one that's going to have the harvest, and the harvest is the judgment at the end of the age. And that's the picture that is given to us here. And we are told that. The Lord Jesus says this, and let me read it in Psalm 2. I will declare the decree the Lord has saith unto me, Thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When will that take place? Did it take place at his first coming? No. This is no missionary text. This takes place at his second coming, when he comes in judgment. For the hour is come to reap, and that's in conformity to the words of Christ. The harvest is the end of the age. And that's Matthew thirteen thirty nine. The time has come to reap. So let's sow the seed today, friends. And not be so everlastingly busy of trying to get somebody's hand up or to have them come forward. Let's make sure we give out the Word of God, and the Spirit of God's going to take care of that. And this again is set before us in the Old Testament. In Joel three thirteen and 14, "...put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great." multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near at hand. Now let me read verses 17 and 18. And another angel, and here we have another angel, came out of the sanctuary which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, he that hath power over the fire, and he called with a great voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Send forth thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Here, the sanctuary, the temple is in heaven. That identifies us with the Old Testament, you see, not with the church. A sharp sickle points to judgment, and the grapes are fully ripe. The thought here, they're dry like raisins. 
And this is a change of metaphor for the war of Armageddon. And that's the picture that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is a very vivid picture. And that's not the coming of Christ the first time. That's the coming of Christ the second time. And as he trods the winepress, it's like blood on him. He's trodding down the wicked. When he came the first time, he shed his blood for them, and they won't have it. They must be judged now. And he gathers them, we're told when we get to Revelation 16, 16, into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon or Armageddon. And we're going to talk about that when we get to it. It's not a battle of Armageddon, but it's the war of Armageddon. Now, we have called attention to the fact that the great tribulation period is going to be a harvest time. Not like we think of harvest time. We think of that as a time of winning people for Christ. But that's not the way that the Scripture uses the term. When you come to the end of any age, why, that is a harvest time. And somebody's going to say, but the Lord Jesus said, "'Pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he'd send forth laborers into the harvest.'" And they said, look, he said that. Yes, but my friend, don't you realize what he was talking about? He was at the end of an age. In fact, he was going to change it. The age of the law was coming to an end. And he's wanting the word to get out so people will be prepared for the new age that was coming, the age of grace that we live in today, that rests upon his death and his resurrection for our sins. Now, the end of an age is the time of harvest. And that's the figure that's used here. And when you get here, you come to the end of the age. The thing that the Lord Jesus mentioned, Paul had mentioned, and it ends with the great tribulation period. And we've come now to the end of the great tribulation period. And this sets before us this most awe-inspiring picture. It describes the scene that we have in Isaiah, the 63rd chapter. And we find out that that refers to the second coming of Christ to the earth. Let me read just a few verses there. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Now let me interject here this statement. This has been considered by many to be a picture of the death of Christ on the cross, and it actually has no reference to that at all. And this will make it clear. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. 
For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury had upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Again, let me say, he is seen treading the wine press alone, and it's positively terrifying. Little wonder that the men of the earth cried to the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, this is the sad end of that civilization, which at the Tower of Babel demonstrated an active rebellion against God which has been mounting up like a mighty crescendo ever since, and it will break in all of its fury in the great tribulation period. And this is a rebellion against God. And the Lord Jesus, as we'll see in the 19th chapter, when he comes, he's going to put that down in order to establish his kingdom here upon the earth. And as the second psalm says, he will break them like a potter's vessel with a rod of iron. You see, the gentle Jesus that we've heard so much about and the good fellow that he's presented today is just not the Lord Jesus of the Word of God. He is the Savior of the world, but he's also the judge of all the world also. And if you do not accept his blood shed for you, then may I say that your blood will be shed in this period that's coming upon the earth. That is, if it would come in your lifetime and you would enter the great tribulation period. Now, I don't think that any careful study of the Word of God would lead any person of reasonable intelligence to believe that the church is going through this awful period. My feeling is that a great many feel like the Great Tribulation will be like taking a little boy to the barber to get his hair cut. Just an unpleasant thing that he doesn't relish at all, and he squirms through it the entire operation. Or that it is a trip to the dentist to have a tooth pulled, and we don't like the trip at all, and we don't enjoy having the tooth pulled but it's something that you're going through, and they want to push the church into it. My friend, you just haven't seen what the Great Tribulation really is. Now, again, we have a picture given to us in Isaiah 34, and I begin reading here at verse 1. "'Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood." The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It's made fat with fatness, with the blood of the lambs and goats, and so on. What a picture that you have here. 
In other words, the precious blood of the Lamb, having been rejected, the blood of those who defied God and followed and worshiped the beast, bathes the earth. It is frightful, like a ripe grape is mashed and the juice flies in every direction. So will little man fall into the vat of God's judgment. This is Armageddon. This is the mount of slaughter. Now, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 14, and I'm reading in my translation, "...and the angel cast his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the winepress, the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city. And there came out blood from the winepress, even unto the bridles of the horses, as far as a thousand and six hundred furlongs." And without the city means Jerusalem. And unto the bridles of the horses means about three or four feet deep. And a thousand and six hundred furlongs is about a hundred and eighty-five miles. And that's the distance from Dan to Beersheba. All of Palestine is the scene of this final war that ends in what is called Armageddon. It is a campaign beginning about the middle of the Great Tribulation and is concluded by the personal return of Christ to the earth. Psalm 45, verse 3, gives us that. "...gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things." Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness, hatest wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm. Now, I make no apology for saying all of this. And God hasn't asked me to apologize for his word. He's told me to give it out. We need to face up to the facts. Sin is an awful thing. Sin is in the world. You and I are sinners. And the only remedy is the redemption that Christ offered when he shed his blood for you and me and paid the penalty for our sins. And you and I merit the judgment of God. And our only escape is to accept the work of Christ on Calvary's cross for us. And the Bible asks a question that even God can't answer. And it is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Escape what? Judgment. The great tribulation is judgment. And the way out is to accept Christ. Call it an escape mechanism if you want to. But my friend, when the house is on fire, I'll go out a window. I'll go out anyway. That is an escape mechanism. And this judgment must inevitably come on Christ's rejectors. Men have rejected him and treated his sacrifice as an unclean thing. They've trodden underfoot the Son of God. 
And if God is just and He is, there will be judgment. And this age needs to hear that, but it's not hearing it today. There's so much given, little methods of living the Christian life. My friend, there's nothing that'll straighten you out like knowing that our God is a holy God and the Lord Jesus Christ is righteous and he's not going to tolerate sin in your life and my life. Now, that's the thing that is needed today. And I notice that many are saying that little Willie should be disciplined. I'm amazed that some of the psychologists today are saying it wasn't because Mama didn't love him as much as she should have that the trouble with little Willie is he's just a mean little brat. That's his problem. He's a mean little brat, and he should be turned across your knee and not treated like a cross between a piece of Dresden china and an orchid, but that the Board of Education should be applied to the seat of knowledge today. May I say that there is a broad today, a viewpoint, that I think is rather new, but it is a viewpoint that the Christian and the church, of course, will go through the Great Tribulation period. And I have an article here from a magazine of a man who actually is a layman, and yet he has the audacity to write like this. He says, "...there is a shallow Christianity moving across our land. Those who do not have deep roots in Christ shrink from the idea that God would test his people with the tribulation or that he would use suffering to help the church make herself ready as a bride for Christ. Very clearly, though, suffering is the pathway to glory. We are called to it. Why? Because Christ also suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. As a result of this thinking, I no longer teach Christians they'll not have to go through the tribulation. Maybe they won't, but I can do more for them, preparing them to face testing in his name than by teaching them that the Lord is going to rapture them out of the hour of trial. And he uses the verse, "...there is a tremendous growth in that person who puts on the whole armor of God that he may be able to withstand in the..." evil day. Well, may I say to you that the great tribulation is not called the evil day. It's called the day of God's wrath, the great day of God's wrath. That's the way it's spoken of in the Bible and how anyone can read what we've been over and study what we've been over and believe that this would purify the church to go through this and to make a statement that the bride's got to make herself ready. What do you think Christ did when he died on the cross? He made us ready there. And you and I, we'll never become worthy to enter his presence. We're going to enter in Christ. And my friend, you can't add anything to that. That notion that's abroad today to attempt to equate that hour of trial with the great day of the wrath of God that's coming on this earth. Now, the church has been delivered from that, and Revelation has made that clear. This 144,000 here that we are looking at, why, they've already been identified for us as Israelites, 
And even the tribes are identified here. So there's no way in the world of saying that's the church. And that great company of Gentiles are Gentiles, not the church, the bride of Christ at all. This 144,000 have come through, and we have seen that God was able to keep them in the great tribulation period. Now, it's not a question of whether God could keep the church in the great tribulation period. Of course, he can keep the church if that was his will and plan. But that is not his will and plan according to the Word of God. The Lord Jesus said, I'm going to keep you from that hour that is coming on this earth, that terrible time of testing that's coming. I like to put it like this. The church is not going through the great tribulation, but we're going through the little tribulation. I think all of us have troubles and trials, and I don't know of a Christian that doesn't have problems and difficulties, and it seems like the more wonderful the saint of God is, the more they suffer down here. But this is where God's developing us today as his children, and we never become wonderful saints of God. We're just his little children, immature, undeveloped, and when we come into his presence, we'll not come there because we've been through the great tribulation. And then, friends... Most of the churches miss the great tribulation. Millions for 1,900 years have died and already gone into the presence of Christ. And I hope you're not going to say he's going to bring them back to put them through the great tribulation. I don't think so. Most of the churches missed it. At best, there'll only be a very small percentage. And probably you want to adopt the opinion that that crowd needs it. I always felt these people that believe the church will go through the great tribulation, they always felt I should go through it. I deserve it. I grant that. But I also deserve hell. But I'm not going to get it because Christ bore it for me. And I've trusted him. And I'm not going through the great tribulation. Why? Because he died for me, and he saves me by his grace. Now, isn't the one who says he's rich in grace, isn't he able to deliver me out of this? He says he's able to deliver me out of even the trials today. And he's been wonderful to me, cured me of cancer, and he has put me through two operations, major operations. And I want to tell you, I feel like I've been through a little tribulation period. And a preacher said to me, you know, I can tell that there's a difference in your ministry after you've gone through all of this. Well, I trust there is. I think he did it for a purpose. But to say I've been through the great tribulation and that I ought to go through it, and I wonder if this brother's really ever suffered for Christ. These folk that talk that way, I wonder how much suffering they've endured. I sat with a preacher that believes that. He's a friend of mine, and he was eating a T-bone steak. And he talked about the church going through the Great Tribulation. This man was holding a meeting for me years ago when I was a pastor back east. And he thought the church would go through the Great Tribulation period. Talked about it as nonchalantly as if the church was probably going to wade through a river or go through a very hot summer or experience an energy shortage or something like that. But he never thought of it as being as terrible 
as it is depicted for us here. And is God misrepresenting here to us? I want to scare you, and I'll tell you how terrible a great tribulation is, but really it's not. Well, my friends, there are places here where he's used symbols. And you know why he used symbols? Not because you can evaporate it and dismiss it, but because the reality that the symbol represents is lots worse than the symbol because many of these things beg a description. There's not language. Even God could not communicate to us, not because God's not able, but we're dull of hearing. He's told us that and that we don't always understand. And I'm afraid that great many folk just don't seem to get it, that the great tribulation is a terrible thing. And this is miraculous. This 144,000 came through, and he didn't lose one of them. Why? Because they're all big, strong, robust fellows. Oh, no, friends. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's the way they did it. All right, that brings us now to chapter 15. And here we have another sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues. And we have the pouring out of these seven mixing bowls of wrath in chapters 15 and 16. I imagine many of you thought the worst was over. Not now. The worst is yet to come. And each one of these sevens beginning as we saw with the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven personalities, and now we have the seven bowls of wrath. And this is the worst of all, friend. Don't tell me that the church can be purified in the great tribulation. The purpose of the great tribulation is judgment. It's to give Satan his final opportunity. And God's going to remove his church because of the fact of his marvelous, infinite grace. And if you're willing to have it, then you can escape. And believe me, it's no blessed hope looking for the seven bowls of wrath. No, we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we get in love with him, we'll get our minds off of these things as being terrifying. That is, we don't have to say, oh, I don't want to study the book of Revelation. It reveals all those terrible things, and I'd like to keep my head in the sand like an ostrich has more sense to do. And therefore, I'd rather not hear about it. My friend, you're not going through it if you've trusted Christ, but you need to know what the others will have to go through, and that might make you a zealous witness for Christ today. That's the reason we're getting the word out today. Someone said of Dwight L. Moody that at his time he looked into the faces of more people than any man that ever lived, and he reduced the population of hell by two million. Well, may I say that I'd like to be in the business of reducing the population of hell. They're talking today about reducing the population and to get rid of the population explosion. Well, hell has had a population explosion now for years. I'd like to help reduce that. And now we come to these seven bowls. Here we have in chapter 15 and 16 that which actually belongs together. Revelation 15 we're coming to now is the shortest chapter in Revelation. 
but it actually is the preface to this final series of judgments which come on the earth during the Great Tribulation period. And these judgments are the most intense and devastating of any that have preceded them. Before these angels begin to pour out the bowls of wrath, there may be the question still in the minds of some if they are able to stand up against Antichrist. And if that question has not been answered to the satisfaction of the reader, it's answered here. There will be those that will be made to stand. And we have, first of all now, the preparation of the final judgment of the great tribulation. And the tribulation saints in heaven worship God because he's holy. And this is another interlude, by the way. Now, let's notice this. And I saw another sign in the heaven, great and wonderful, seven angels having seven plagues, which are the last, for in them was finished the wrath of God. This will bring us to the end of the great tribulation period. And I don't know about you, I'll be glad to get to the end of it. And then we'll see the coming of Christ to the earth. John again assures us when he says, And I saw that he's still a spectator to these events. He's attending the dress rehearsal of the last act of man's little day upon the earth. And another sign connects this chapter with Revelation 12:1. We had the first sign, and that was Israel. Now, these seven angels of wrath are connected with the judgments to follow until Christ comes, which is in chapter 19. Now, from chapter 12 to the return of Christ is a series of events which are mutually related. Now, this does not mean that there's a chronological order, but rather a logical order, which is a retracing of the same events with added detail. And this method, by the way, is the personal signature of the Holy Spirit. Beginning in Genesis, he put out his signature there. And Genesis 1, we had the creation and the seven days given to us. Then when we came to chapter 2, he lifted out the creation of man and went over that again, but added details. That's known as the law of recapitulation. And it runs all the way through the Scripture. You have the giving of the law, then Deuteronomy is the interpretation of the law with 40 years' experience with it in the wilderness, and a great deal of detail has been added. Now, we see that it'll go all the way through the Scripture. When you come to Christ, you have four Gospels, not one, not two, but four, because it'll take four to give the many sides of this glorious person who came to the earth 1,900 years ago. Now, Satan, having been cast to the earth, brings down his wrath upon the remnant of Israel. Also, he makes a final thrust for world domination through the two beasts. Then God makes a final display of his wrath and concludes earth's sordid tragedy of sin. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That is Psalm 110, 1. 
And we're told here it was finished. Now, in the Greek, that's a prophetic aorist which considers an event in the future as already accomplished. Now, we have mentioned here the wrath of God, and that marks the final judgment of the great tribulation. God has been slow to anger, but here ends his long-suffering. Judgment in the final stages of the day of wrath proceeds from God, not from Satan, nor the wild beast, but it comes from the throne of God. God will judge. Now, we want to read verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a glassy sea mingled with fire, and them that came off victorious from the wild beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing by or on the shore of the glassy sea having harps of God. Now, the glassy sea here mingled with fire is the frightful persecution of the beast during the great tribulation period. This is the period that, as we have seen, that no man could buy nor sell unless he had the mark of the beast. It's going to be very difficult to get things to eat in that day. And that's the reason the Lord Jesus, speaking actually of this period in the Olivet Discourse, said that if you give a cup of cold water in his name, you see... Anyone in that day that would give a, even a cup of cold water to one of the 144,000, his name or his life would be in jeopardy because the beast would put him to death also for harboring, as he would call it, a criminal. Now, these are difficult days. And again, we ask the question, could anyone make it through? No, not unless they'd been sealed. And multitudes that were not sealed will be the martyrs during this period. And I think a great many of the 144,000 will lay down their life for Jesus. But they are going to be with him, as we've already seen. They're with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now, we are told here they came off victorious. Now, they not only made it through, but they came off victorious. Now, here are the tribulation saints who have come through the fires of persecution on the earth, yet have not lost their song. They have the harps of God, we're told. And we're going to see in the next couple of verses that they're able to sing and do sing. Now, I'm just wondering, Christian, today, none of us are in the great tribulation if we're a child of God. We're not going through it. Are you having trouble even in these days of keeping from your heart just a little root of bitterness? Paul had that problem, you remember. Be careful, he said, lest a little root of bitterness. And it's so easy for that to happen. Now, maybe this has no application to you whatsoever, but it does have application to me. I know that when I was in my teens, when I was 17 and 18 years old, that's when I made my decision to study for the ministry. And in fact, that's when I came to Christ. And I expected the Christians to be for me, but a very wealthy family in Nashville, and I'm not going into details, 
that they actually turned against me. I was going with their daughter, and they didn't want a poor preacher in the family. And I want to tell you, a teenage boy feels those things more keenly, I guess. But even to this good day, I have to fight that little root of bitterness against that class of people that treated me so badly in that day. Now, that wasn't tribulation at all. It was a heartbreak, but it wasn't a great tribulation by any means. What about that little root of bitterness today? You having problem with it? I meet many Christians today that they've let that little root of bitterness spoil their lives, and it actually causes them to deteriorate in their Christian life and testimony. I know a Christian family back east, a lovely Christian family, and something happened, and they became very bitter toward another family, and they just wouldn't let go. And that root of bitterness entered into their lives, and I've seen them sit in church, not a one of them smiling. It can ruin your Christian life, friends, but we need to pray in the face of life's circumstances that a root of bitterness will not spring up. It's interesting to see that these tribulation saints who have lived through the great tribulation, they've kept their song. One of our listeners sent me a poem by Robert Browning, and I thought I knew Robert Browning pretty well, but I had never seen this before. I'd like to share it with you. It's on prayer. It says, Unanswered yet, faith cannot be unanswered. Her feet were firmly planted on the rock. Amid the wildest storm she stands undaunted, nor quails before the loudest thunder shock. She knows omnipotence has heard her prayer and cries, It shall be done sometime, somewhere. Unanswered yet? Nay, do not say ungranted. Perhaps your part is not yet wholly done. The work began when your first prayer was uttered, and God will finish what he has begun. If you will keep the incense burning there, His glory you shall see sometime, somewhere. And friends, in this life that you and I live in today, down here, a little root of bitterness will come in. What do we do? We need to pray. We need to pray about this thing, I think, more than anything else. If these saints can come through the great tribulation and still sing, I want to say that you and I, Certainly ought today, maybe not sing with any great ability, but we can have a song in our heart, and we should have, even regardless of circumstances. Now, will you notice the psalmist says to us in Psalm 35, "...for his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning." And I've learned this over the years, that God never lets anyone cross your pathway, even an enemy, without it's going to teach you a lesson, that he's permitted it for a purpose. It's for the development of your character. We need to be in prayer today, that we not fall into the trap of Satan and lose the joy of our salvation. Now, verses 3 and 4. 
and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and wonderful are thy works, Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages, our King of the nations, who shall not fear, Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy, and all the nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts were made manifest. Now, if you want to learn the Song of Moses, you'll find it back in Exodus, the 15th chapter, verses 1 through 21, and again in Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 43. Now, both songs speak of God's deliverance, salvation, and faithfulness. Now, the Song of the Lamb is the ascription of praise to Christ as the Redeemer. We've already seen in this book, Revelation 5, 9 through 12. So I'll not turn back to either of these two songs. But again, may I call your attention to the fact that the book of Revelation is Christocentric. That means it is Christ-centered. Don't let the four horsemen carry you away. We've got a lot of runaway horsemen today. People get interested in that. And they blow into the trumpets. That's a way to get a crowd, start blowing trumpets. And then these seven personages, my, we can get interested in them. And we can also get interested in these seven bowls of wrath. But let's don't get interested in them. Let's keep our eyes centered on Christ. He's in charge. He's the Lord here. And in this book, we have, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ in his holiness, in his power, and in his glory. And this is something we need to know about him. Oh, the man Christ Jesus is wonderful. He is the one that can put his hand in God and put his hand in man. And the reason he can put his hand in God, because he is God. Now, he's called here the king of the ages. It could be king of the saints or king of the nation. Now, any rendering indicates that Christ will be the object of universal worship and acknowledgement. There'll be no place where he'll not be worshipped on this earth. And who shall not fear, Lord, and glorify thy name? Now, in our day, there's very little reverential fear of God, even among believers. We've been so caught up on this lovey-dovey subject, and I don't think we should lose sight of it. God is love, but God is light, too, and that means God is holy. And God is moving in on churches and dealing with Christians as he never has done before. And here's one that can testify to that. If you are God's child, you had better not do as you please. If you think God would mind sending you a little trouble, you are wrong. God is to be feared. Our God is a holy God. And nations shall come and worship before thee. Now the day will come when nations will come and worship before him. It's not true today. A little prayer breakfast in Washington is a pretty sorry substitute for universal worship of God. And a man gave that to me as the argument that we're living in a Christian nation. What nonsense. We're not living in a Christian nation. There will come a day when every nation will worship him. 
This knowledge ought to cause us to take heart as we see our own nation moving in the wrong direction today. There will come a day. In other words, God will remove the rebellious ones and only leave those who will worship. And he says in Psalm 2.8, "...ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession." They're going to be his. And in Isaiah 11.9, "...they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord." the waters cover the sea. Won't need any through the Bible radio in that day or any of these other radio programs because men are going to know, have a knowledge of God. And Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And you know that One of the things that the awful travail that this country's been through, and by the way, we've been so engrossed in our own problems and too much engrossed in them, our hearts have been made weary by all the scandal, but other nations have had this problem also. And today, it's almost nauseating when you see the immorality You see the godlessness. You see the injustice that's in this world. If I were not a Christian, I would be one of the most radical persons you've ever met. But I'm a child of God. And today, I see all that in the world. And I know I can't remedy it. And I can't even lift a little finger because he's the one that's going to reign someday. And he's going to execute judgment and justice in the earth. Thank God for that. I get so tired of politicians telling me that they represent me in Washington and they want to do what I want them to do, and they go there and do everything they can for themselves. And I don't care what party we're talking about. May I say to you the gross immorality, the gross injustice that there is abroad today and What can you do? Well, may I say to you, God's people need to pray for our country today. But there is coming one that's going to execute justice and judgment. Now, listen to Paul in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, that is, Jesus, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, they're not going to acknowledge him as Redeemer in hell, but they're going to acknowledge him that he is the boss, he's running things, that this is his universe, that he's the owner, and they're going to acknowledge the glory of God. They'll have to. Now, also thy righteous acts... And that comes from the lips of those who've passed through the great tribulation. You see, this testimony coming from witnesses of this period is inexpressibly impressive. And it should settle in the minds of believers the fact that God is right in all that he does. It may not look right to you. And if you don't think that God is doing right, you are wrong, not God. And we need to adjust our 
attitude and our thinking. Psalm 7, 9 reads, "'Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns.'" Psalm 11, 7, "'For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth uphold the upright.'" And then Psalm 107, verse 1, "'Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endureth forever.'" Verse 40, "...he poureth contempt upon princes, and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way." 42, "...the righteous shall see it, and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth." That's when God takes charge. Now, let me read verses 5 and 6 here. "...and after these things I saw in the sanctuary, or the temple of the tabernacle, of the testimony or of the witness in heaven was open. There came out from the temple seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in linen, pure and white, and girt about the breast with golden girdles. Now, the temple is referred to 15 times in the Revelation. Its prominence cannot be ignored. In the first part of Revelation, it's the church, no temple. From there on, we have a scene in heaven, and the temple is opened in heaven. There's a temple on earth also patterned after the one in heaven. Now, there's no temple in the New Jerusalem where the church is going. There's no temple there. Why? Because the church is not identified with. This ought to tell something, friends. He's dealing with people who have had a temple. And I know of but one people that have been given a God-given temple pattern after the one in heaven. Now, in this instance, the reference is specifically to the tabernacle and the holy of holies in which the ark of the testimony was kept. In the ark were the tables of stone. Both the tabernacle and the tables of stones were duplicates of the original in heaven. Now, the originals have already been referred to in Revelation 11:19. The action of God here is based on the violation of his covenant with Israel, the broken law. God is righteous in what he's about to do. He will judge. Then he will carry out his covenant with Israel. And so the prominence of angels in this book is again called to our attention by the appearance of angels at this point. Previously, seven angels blew on seven trumpets. Here in a new service, seven who have the seven plagues of the bowls of wrath. Their departure from the temple demonstrates they've departed from the mercy seat, and now God acts in justice and not mercy. They're clothed in linen. One meaning is a precious stone, apparently a robe that is dotted or decorated with stones. That seems to be the picture. The gold girdles reveal them in the livery of Christ, who no longer is exercising a priestly function, but is seen here judging the world. Now I come back today to this very remarkable chapter 15 of Revelation, and it's remarkable because it actually is the entranceway and the introduction to the last sevens in Revelation that concern the Great Tribulation period. It introduces the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out upon the earth. 
And now the last two verses, and I'll read verses 7 and 8 together again here in the 15th chapter. It says, "...one of the four living creatures..." Now, that was at the throne of God, you'll recall. "...gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God." Now, this is not the love of God. It's judgment. "...the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever, and the sanctuary," that is, the temple, "...was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power." And no one was able to enter into the sanctuary or the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels should be finished. Now, the very fact we continue to deal with the temple ought to indicate to anyone that's knowledgeable that we're not dealing with the church. The temple and tabernacle had nothing to do with the church. They are marvelous pictures of Christ that have spiritual lessons for us today. I have a book on the tabernacle, God's portrait of Christ. But that does not mean that we are to build a temple today or a tabernacle. And here it refers to people who had a tabernacle and a temple. And that, of course, is Israel. But a great many are reluctant to admit that because they dismiss Israel in the plan and purpose of God when you get to the beginning of the New Testament. And the New Testament does not dismiss them, as you can see. Now, these are seven golden bowls. They represent the final part of the Great Tribulation period. And I think bowls better describe the containers here than the word vials in our authorized version. When I think of a vial, I think of a little test tube that's used in a laboratory. But here... These are bowls, they're large, and they were used in the temple service. A bowl of blood was taken by the high priest one day each year into the Holy of Holies. And the bowl of blood spoke of redemption for sin. Now, these seven angels with priestly garments, they've departed from the temple proper. They're no longer engaged in a service of mercy, but they're beginning a strange ministry pouring out bowls of wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. A world that has rejected the blood of Christ must now bear the judgment for sin. This judgment is not the result of man's or Satan's enmity. It's the direct action of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gentle Jesus. But we saw that strange statement at the beginning of this section the wrath of the Lamb. We never think of a little lamb being angry, and a lion can roar, but not a little lamb. But the wrath of the Lamb, and that's the thing that's going to startle the world someday. Now, the prophets use this figure of the cup of iniquity and wrath, which would be finally poured out in judgment. In fact, their picture was that God is patiently letting it fill up. When it fills up, He'll move in. And smoke here is connected with the glory of God. I do not want to enlarge upon that at this time. Now, these seven angels with seven golden bowls make it clear that the judgments of the bowls proceed from God and are not the result of man's miscalculations and mistakes or of Satan's enmity. 
This is the direct action of God. Now, the number seven that's been running all through this book will continue. It does not mean perfection. So many today think that seven in Scripture denotes perfection. Again, may I repeat this? It denotes completeness. And this denotes the complete judgment and final judgment of God upon this world in which we live.